You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here in New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you today, Prashant. We have a lot to talk about, in mm-hmm. particular regard to an important development in South Asia. So on February 14th, uh, over 2,000 Indian Central Reserve Police Force personnel were traveling in a convoy comprising about 80 vehicles on a highway in Kashmir's Pulwama district. And they were struck by a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. And this resulted in over 40 casualties, representing the deadliest attack on state security personnel in India since 1989. The attack was claimed by an assailant who was a local from Kashmir, uh, from India-administered Kashmir, uh, but he identified himself with Jaish e Mohammed, the Pakistan-based terrorist group that's been well known for sponsoring a range of attacks on India, uh, going back as far as two decades. Uh, they were involved in the 2002 attack on Indian Parliament, in the 2016 attack on Indian Army personnel at Uri, which resulted in the Indian retaliatory surgical strikes that year. They were also involved in the Gurdaspur attack, the Patan Code attack. So this group has really been at the forefront of many of these moves. And this latest attack obviously resulted in a spectacular death toll, and it's really sparked off a major crisis between these two nuclear-armed neighbors. We have not seen any Indian kinetic retaliation yet. The Indian military has not made any moves as of this recording, uh, which we're taping on February 21st, but that's certainly been a possibility. Prime Minister Narendra Modi, shortly after the attack, said that the attackers will pay a price And he's politically under a lot of pressure to do something, given that general elections that will test his party are just around the corner. Um, Indians will start voting in April and May, with the results to come out in mid to late May. So this is really um, a crisis that's happening at a politically interesting time in India. And yeah, I think we have a lot to talk about here. But um, Prashant, I guess, you know, let's just um, address some of the issues here. I mean, what to you really jumps out about the attack and its aftermath so far? I mean, I, I think it's a lot of kind of what you summed up, which is uh, at on the one hand, I think there's a temptation always when these attacks happen to say, you know, this is kind of more of the same from Pakistan and, it, you know, the same dynamics are at play, whether it's Pakistan's behavior and its support of um, terrorism, the dynamics between India and Pakistan, the U.S. regional perspective. But I think this could not come at, you know, a worse time, right? So we have so so many ambiguities on so many different levels. The India-Pakistan relationship is already at, at such a low, and we have India heading for elections and Pakistan with a new government. So, so much uncertainty at the domestic level in both countries. And then you have U.S. policy in the Trump administration, where you've seen, you know, as you and I have discussed before, you know, kind of a, a superficial hardening of a stance on Pakistan and some actions that are taken on security assistance, suspension, and the like. But the policy hasn't really been developed to date, and there's just so many ambiguities around that. And then there's the regional angle too, right? So this, you know, how India and Pakistan relate and how the United States plays into this also affects things like Afghanistan and some of the peace talks that are going on. So I would say, I mean, this is this is something which, um, it, it's, it, it's coming at an interesting time from so many different, lenses that it's really difficult to assess the exact significance of this on above and beyond the fact that we're talking about this 
you know, at a time when we haven't seen the full range of Indian responses, we've seen some responses to date. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it really remains to be seen where we're at uh, in terms of that perspective, too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, let's talk a bit about the Indian response so far. Um, so, like I said, Modi said that the attackers will pay a price. And, you know, you look at the Indian media and across the board, I think commentators on both sides of the political spectrum effectively see military retaliation as sort of a given, which in a way is dangerous given the expectations set after the surgical strikes, right? I mean, this attack is on a different level. It involved, uh, you know, several hundred kilograms of conventional explosives. Um, it involved a local attacker, like I said, who expressed allegiance to Jaish e Mohammed, who were across the border in the Pakistani province of Punjab. That's where Masood Azhar, the group's leader, is thought to be based and roam freely effectively because the Pakistani authorities don't give him much trouble. Um, but actually, you know, that's an important distinction here, too, with with attacks like Uri and Patankot and Gurdaspur in recent years, uh, Indian intelligence agencies had pretty good evidence that these attackers had infiltrated across the line of control. Um, and I think in the case of Gurdaspur, the international border. Um, but with this attack, uh, it's, it's a little bit more different. I mean, um, some of our listeners may be aware, but beginning in the summer of 2016, um, the attraction of Kashmiri youth to a range of insurgent groups and militant groups in the region, including Hezbollah Mujahideen, um, has really risen. So a lot of youth have turned um, towards these groups. And, of course, there's been a feedback effect caused by the fact that the Indian army has been particularly heavy-handed in recent years with its tactics in Kashmir. And, of course, the political situation in Kashmir has been in flux with the BJP um, alliance government with with the local PDP party having fallen apart. Um, not too long ago. Um, so really, I think there's been political developments in Kashmir that have made the environment a lot more dangerous. And perhaps what we're seeing with Pulwama is actually the beginning of a new era of an increasingly dangerous kind of insurgency, which, uh, you know, the expectation there would be that this will simply feed into further hostility against Kashmiris. And, you know, I should note that after this attack uh, across India, uh, just ordinary Kashmiris faced harassment and retaliation. Um, and that's been, I think, you know, really difficult to kind of um, make sense of for for many um, Indians who've been kind of trying to make sense of what is going to happen after the Pulwama attack. Um, but the Indian response, uh, you know, to go back to that, uh, has been pretty swift. So the Ministry of External Affairs diplomatic machinery kicked into overdrive, really, after the attack. And I think India managed to get statements out of most major countries, most G20 countries, uh, at least, condemning the attack and saying that they supported India. Uh, India offered its own readouts of many of these calls and meetings that happened. Uh, India briefed to diplomats. Uh, notably, India withdrew most favored nation status from Pakistan, which is, is symbolically important. The total, you know, the bottom line on the economic damage done to Pakistan is, is not as high as you might think, given the limited trade between the two countries. But it's something that happened uh, just earlier today. Um, Nitin Gadkari, the uh, the transportation minister in India, uh, made an announcement that I think has been a little garbled. Uh, he announced that India would be diverting some waters that were going to Pakistan from the Ram uh, from the Ravi River uh, towards the Indian states of Punjab and Kashmir now. But that isn't really retaliation under the Indus Waters um, Treaty, which I think some Indians have been calling for. Uh, but, you know, that's actually an older move that's been in play since really 2001 that's now being announced sort of opportunistically. 
in the environment after the Pulwama attack. Um, but yeah, the military action has not yet come. Modi has effectively said that he's given the military something of a free hand. He had this sort of comment. I don't have it exactly in front of me right now, but it was kind of concerning from a civil military perspective, just that mm -hmm. the Indian prime minister after a major attack like this was sort of saying, you know, it's in the military's hands and they'll respond at a time and place if they're choosing. That's really not how civilian control of the military is supposed to work in India. I kind of saw that as an attempt to maybe politically push some of the responsibility off of his own shoulders and towards the military. Because I think, you know, maybe this is something we can talk about. I mean, I think the military situation here is actually pretty complicated after the surgical strikes in 2016. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think the the other aspect of this that's really interesting is um, we had a piece actually, well, a couple of pieces actually on our site, um, one by um, Raji, um, who t which talked about um, sort of some of the responses that India um, could actually take towards these attacks. And I think essentially the, the conventional wisdom, which I think when these attacks occur is, um, you know, you have this narrative coming out that the Indians actually have very limited options in terms of how they react. And one of the interesting dynamics that we've seen with respect to this attack is Pakistan has unsurprisingly, I think, come out in front of this and sort of said, well, if India responds in this way, these will be the consequences um, that we're going to take from our side. Um, so that's the other, I think, complicating dynamic in all of this, that you have, you know, sort of two players that are essentially telegraphing each other's moves and sort of, you know, what the counter reactions right. um, might be. And, and as you said, I mean, there's symmetrical ways to react to this um, and then also asymmetrical ways. So we've talked about some of the economic levers in the relationship um, talk about, you know, water, um, economics, trade, and the like. But the fact is, um, as we both have discussed before, um, India-Pakistan relations on the economic side are already so limited. Um, so it's very difficult for the Indians to take a, a very concerted response that would actually change Pakistan's decision-making calculus. Um, but I think one of the things that's been really interesting is, I mean, we, we talked about briefly about U.S. policy. Um, and I'm wondering what, what your take is on this about, you know, the Trump administration, we saw Trump tweeting out in the new year, um, sort of a, a tougher approach towards uh, Pakistan. Do you see from a from a U.S. perspective, the Trump administration stepping up its response in, in reaction to what Pakistan is doing? Or will we see, given the fact that the U.S. has to balance considerations in Pakistan, uh, in Afghanistan, for example, with how it's dealing with the South Asian dynamic? that that won't really change that significantly. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, you know, on one hand, we should probably talk a bit about how India kind of views the U.S. role anytime anything happens in Kashmir. Uh, India really wants full-throated support from Washington for its own position. It does not want Washington to ever step in and offer its services as a mediator. And mm -hmm. the Trump administration hasn't done that, right? We have comments from President Trump, I think, in 2017, where he, you know, kind of made an offhand remark that he would maybe look at mediating in Kashmir, and people in <laughs> India got worried about that. But that hasn't happened. You know, there was, a, there was a conversation between the National Security Advisors, um, Ajit Doval and John Bolton, and the Indian readout was really kind of uh, effusive about what Bolton had said. Um, as far as I know, we don't have a U.S. readout that supports the Indian readout of that call. But, you know, these things are always a little tricky. I mean, Bolton might have said that, you know, oh, we support your position. Of, of course, mm -hmm. you have a right to respond. And then India might take that to mean that the U.S. backs a military response, which is, you know, two different things. Um, but look, I mean, Washington right now, as you know, is pretty distracted and I think doesn't really have the bandwidth at a high level to really deal with something like this in Asia right now. We have a summit with North Korea coming up. We have a trade deadline coming up at the same time at the end of this month. I mean, India-Pakistan tensions, I think, are something that's—I mean, look, after Pulwama, it actually took a few days for the U.S. to really 
do mm-hmm. anything significant. There was a State Department statement pretty early on, which was actually quite forceful and mentioned Pakistan by name, uh, which I think is enough for New Delhi. But I really don't think the U.S. is going to play a major role. One of the things we should talk about, you know, I mean, uh, with with the Indian retaliatory moves, another issue that's now coming to the fore is the listing of Jaish Muhammad leader Masood Azhar pursuant to United Nations Security Council Resolution 1267 as a global terrorist. That's something that India has sought for years, but China, uh, using its position on the Security Council as a permanent member, has exercised its veto um, in a technical way to prevent Azhar from being listed. And that's been something that India's brought up with China multiple times, but Beijing hasn't changed its position on that. Um, This time, however, it's not the United States that's taking the lead at the Security Council. Uh, According to some recent reports, it's going to be the French, which I think is an interesting development. Uh, that the French are choosing to do this on India's behalf. I think it speaks probably quite well to India's diplomatic efforts with France in recent years. Um, You know, everything with the Rafale scandal to the side for a moment. Um, But that's something that's now, I think, going to come up. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how China acts. We have no indication that China's changed its policy on this front, um, especially given statements out of the Chinese foreign ministry. But that's uh, another issue to watch. But yeah, I mean, the United States is really not... Um, present in a way that you know you might have thought uh, under a previous administration. I think for New Delhi, that's actually not the worst thing, given the kind of political statements that we already have in support of India's position. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and and what do you think about um, you know you, you've written about this before? I mean, we, this is coming at a very interesting time uh, from a regional perspective too. I mean, you have um, the ongoing Afghan peace talks uh, that are continuing. And then you also have the, I, I guess, the, the the very interesting and maybe not so opportune uh, visit of the Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, um, who had planned previously, pre- before the attacks had happened, a visit to Pakistan and then over to India and China. And we're seeing some statements uh, coming out relating to his role, obviously not directly with respect to these attacks, but also... I guess showcasing some of Pakistan's other relationships above and beyond what India has with Pakistan, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, beginning with the Afghan talks issue. um, So there was an interesting incident just a couple days ago where Pakistan's ambassador to Afghanistan uh, pretty directly hinted that, you know, if India takes any military action, that could derail the talks with the Taliban, Mm -hmm. uh, which was obviously, I mean, immediately condemned by Kabul and, uh, you know, really, I think, shows Pakistan's kind of opportunistic use of its influence over the Taliban. Uh, When convenient, uh, Pakistan will say that, really, we don't have any control over the Taliban, but, you know, obviously, they're willing to acknowledge it when, when politically opportune. And this came after... Uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan's offer to India. Imran Khan took a few days to kind of stew after the Pulwama attack, and then he finally put out a statement saying that, look, India needs to give us evidence and we'll investigate this in a joint form. And India really has no interest in that, given the experience of Pakistani investigations, especially after the Patan Code attack and going back further even to the 2008 Mumbai attack. Um, so that's that's that issue. It's not surprising that Pakistan would try to leverage the Afghan talks issue. I think that actually probably gets Washington's attention more at this Mm -hmm. point than anything else, uh, given how much the Trump administration has really staked, um, has really got stakes right now in these talks concluding successfully. Um, Mohammed bin Salman's trip, I mean, I think was a bit of a tactical surprise, I guess. Uh, He was always scheduled to travel to the region. After the attack, he delayed his trip by a day, which I think gave some people pause, thinking that he might actually cancel his trip, given that he doesn't Mm want to jump into the middle of this mess, but he went through with it, ultimately. Um, 
His joint statement with Imran Khan in Pakistan, I think, raised some eyebrows in India because it explicitly referred to the idea of not politicizing the designation of terrorists at the United Nations right after this attack. So I think um, people in India, I mean, rightfully saw that as a snub. And then the question was, how would India react to Mohammed bin Salman coming to New Delhi? Uh, and, you know, fun fact here is that he didn't actually fly from Pakistan to India. He flew back to Saudi Arabia and then flew back to India just to kind of thoroughly decouple the trip. Uh, you know, I mean, I've done worse routings on my trips to Asia at some point, but, you know, that's just a little ridiculous. And then, you know, he was greeted warmly at the airport by Modi, and that kind of kicked off the trip on a good note and kind of showed that India wasn't really willing to hold its relationship with Saudi Arabia um, hostage to issues with Pakistan. And the joint statement that India and Saudi Arabia signed has a little bit of something for both countries. I mean, the Saudis actually managed to get an Indian acknowledgement of, um, I, I believe the exact language made reference to uh, terrorist use of missiles and drones, which is a pretty direct reference to what Saudi Arabia sees as the uh, Iranian proxy Houthis in Yemen, who have a lot more autonomy than they uh, you know, are sometimes given credit for. They're not necessarily a proxy group of the IRGC or anything like that. Um, but in exchange, they also got uh, Saudi Arabia to lend some support to India. I don't believe there was a direct mention of Pakistan in the context of terrorism in that statement. But, you know, I mean, for all things considered, it was an important statement. And of course, the big headline in India was that, you know, Mohammed bin Salman promised something ridiculous, like a $100 billion of investment, which is probably never going to actually materialize. But I think it actually shows that the India-Saudi relationship is maturing to a point where, you know, something like Pulwama can happen and India can still have a productive exchange. And of course, this is, you know, Mohammed bin Salman's kind of image restoration tour, I guess, after the uh, entire um, saga involving Jamal Khashoggi last year. So uh, he's now, yeah, he's now off to China. So uh, we'll see what happens on that end. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that definitely one of the <laughs> the more interesting sort of uh, instances of foreign involvement with respect to both countries, I think, with respect to the attack. So. Yeah. I mean, one other thing we might talk about is India's military options. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, this has been kind of one of the first things that I started thinking of after this attack. So... In 2016, uh, India carried out what it called surgical strikes across the line of control. And first of all, you know, I should impress on listeners that in the India-Pakistan context, there's a big difference between uh, military action taken across the line of control, which is effectively an interim demarcation between the two sides. It's not a border. Uh, it's a mutually agreed sort of demarcation of the parts of the disputed Kashmir territory that they both administer. So action across that line is very different from action across the international border, which runs primarily between the southern tip of the line of control all the way down to the Arabian Sea border between Gujarat and Sindh. Um, so those are two different things. And Indian action in 2016 took place across the line of control. And they, it wasn't a first. Indian um, Indian Army officers had conducted strikes uh, across, the, across the line of control in the past, but... In 2016, uh, I think it was 19 Indian Army soldiers died in the Uri attack, and it was a major, major incident at the time, and India had to retaliate. So they retaliated, and they struck what they called terror launch pads across the line of control in Pakistan-administered Kashmir. Um, mm -hmm. The Pakistanis said nothing happened, and effectively it all ended there. India had a major kind of domestic victory. Modi kind of got to beat his chest. Uh, there's a movie now about the Uri surgical strikes. It's kind of a major moment of Indian pride that they responded to these attacks. From a deterrence perspective, it clearly didn't work um, because the fundamental challenge in dealing with subconventional actors like terrorists in a place like Kashmir is to practice deterrence by denial, not by punishment, because you simply 
punishment just doesn't work to deter terror groups in the same way that it might work against a state adversary. Right. So what happened now? Uh, what happens now is that India is again forced to retaliate, and effectively the attack would be retributive, uh, presumably across the line of control. But given the stakes here, uh, you know you have, you have a vehicle-borne IED attack killing 40 personnel, major attack. This is something you clearly don't want to see happen again, and you want to send a message to Pakistan. India's got to go bigger. And the question is, how do you go bigger without, you know, all sorts of things going wrong, you know, without potentially killing a bunch of Pakistani army officers and killing, you know, kicking off a limited war that might not stay limited. And of course, in the context of India and Pakistan, when you think about a war escalating, you have to bring into play the role of nuclear weapons, which quickly becomes scary. And I think the Modi government is well aware of these issues. And the other question is, you know, if you simply go back to using your surgical strikes again, um, you begin to look a little weak and mm -hmm. they're probably not going to go with that. So, you know, some of the options that have been discussed include, you know, using standoff missiles off of fighters, which is escalatory, you know, especially if you're Pakistan, you have, uh, you know, big kind of cruise missiles flying towards your territory that begins to look a little bit more involved in a surgical strike. Um, Pakistan might do what they did after Uri and simply say nothing happened. Uh, although I think with a cruise missile strike like that, you run into the risk of kind of open source um, open source analysts and journalists simply getting evidence, right? After the surgical strikes, it was actually really interesting. I mean, nobody really had direct evidence of these attacks happening until the government um, made things a little bit more public and selectively leaked details to a few journalists based in India. Um, so this is a real dilemma right now. And, we'll, you know, we'll really have to see what the uh, Indian government is going to decide on. Um, I think Mohammed bin Salman's trip provided a bit of a buffer. India wasn't going to do anything while he was uh, in the region. But now that he's left, all bets are off. Uh, so retaliation could really come at any time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the the point you mentioned about the fact that this is the first sort of VBIED attack, right? I mean, this is a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. This is this hasn't happened before that we know of. Uh, well, so um, it's actually, so according to the South Asia Terrorism Portal, um, yeah. there have been few attacks, uh, not of this caliber and not right. of this death toll. The total death toll between 2000 and 2017 from VBIEDs in Kashmir, I believe, according to their data, was 88. And of course, this represents, you know, a 40%, a 50% increase in those uh, casualties. So this is significant, uh, but it's not a totally new development. It is it is significant in the in the sense of an attack against Indian paramilitary personnel. Right. Um, so you, you were pointing to this earlier, I think, which is, you know, that there's sort of when these attacks happen, uh, a sort of, you know, one thread which says, you know, this is kind of more of the same. We've seen Pakistan do this in the past. We just have to wait for the Indian reaction and, you know, around and around we go. But there's also, you know, indications and, and folks that are a little bit more worried uh, suggesting that this may suggest a, a newer phase where India-Pakistan relations and tensions may actually heighten to a more significant degree and we can expect more of this in the future. I mean, how should we think about that question and what are the variables at play? Obviously, still very early days um, and we haven't really seen the full response from either of the sides, but it seems to me that's one question that, that kind of is looming, right? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting question. I mean, look, the militant landscape in Kashmir has changed pretty dramatically in the past few years. And of course, we have plenty of examples of other terror groups using these kinds of attacks where um, they simply influence people to their cause without directly um, motivating them to conduct the attack. Mm -hmm. um, we don't exactly know the motivation behind this attack. There have been a few interesting reports. Uh, Saika Dutta writing at the Asia Times Online 
uh, cited sources in the Indian intelligence services noting that one of the early Indian hypotheses behind what drove the attacker in this case was that Ibrahim Azar, who's Masood Azar's brother, um, recently lost his son in Kashmir in, a, in an encounter with Indian forces, and this attack was effectively revenge for that, right? So that tells a very different story than this attack being sort of directed by elements within the Pakistani intelligence complex, right? If this is simply, uh, you know, a Jashin Muhammad leader seeking personal revenge on the Indian army for something that was done to his son, right. you know, those motivations can be warped a bit. But, you know, it, keeping in mind the changes in the militant landscape, we could get to a point where um, many of these younger militants and rebels that have taken up guns against the Indian army begin to conduct attacks um you know, of a varying degrees of sophistication. Uh, most of these attacks simply involve small arms and sometimes occasionally grenades and things like that. And then they declare themselves as sort of, you know, fidayeen or, you know, suicide fighters for Jaisha Muhammad. And then what happens is that every time one of these encounters happens, you sort of get a major India-Pakistan crisis because anytime you have the name Jaisha Muhammad linked to any attacks, um, what immediately goes off in New Delhi is, you know, this is, this is Pakistan, Pakistan, Pakistan. And... You know, the details of that, I think, are worth parsing out a bit because India is in a way correct that obviously Pakistan is harboring Jaish e Muhammad and allowing it to conduct its leadership operations there, at least without, you know, with impunity. Uh, so regardless of what happens and how these attacks are attributed in, in India-administered Kashmir, uh, that side of the equation doesn't change. So mm-hmm. I think I think that's something that, you know, we should probably pay more attention to going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess we'll have to just see how this plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I think we uh, I think we've about covered all this ground. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if and when if and when there is any uh, further action on this, we'll we'll come back to it. But I guess Prashant, in the meantime, we should probably get ready for the uh, North Korea U.S. summit next yeah. week in Hanoi. So we'll probably talk about that on the next episode. Um, good. But good to have you back with me. Thanks for joining me. Likewise, yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, For listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast and you want to get more of this, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play, please go ahead and do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.